a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Why, hello, friends. Welcome in. Hello. 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 What are we drinking on this fine day? I'm two-fisting it. I have a strawberry banana smoothie in one hand and good old water in the other. Mm, mm-hmm. Did you mm-hmm. hand make your smoothie this time? Or is it I like did, a pre-packaged? I made, I, I always make my smoothies. What's the right ratio of strawberry to banana? There is a correct question, or correct answer. I would say there isn't because I'm pregnant and it changes a lot. Mm. Checkmate, Josh. Okay, so what did you do today? Sometimes I want more banana. So today I had two <laughs> whole bananas. And oh, oh my um, God. I know. That's intense. And I don't, honestly, I don't remember how much strawberry I put in. I know there was a lot, and they were whole strawberries. But I did add one cup of orange juice. I remember that exact measurement. Um, but yeah, my my taste fluctuates. So sometimes I want more strawberry. Sometimes I want more orange. Sometimes mm. I just want every fruit under the sun. It really depends <laughs> on the day. Mm. Fair enough. I think one of the best, most charismatic flavor combinations that fruit has to offer is a strawberry and pineapple. Oh, yeah. That, that is a killer combo right there. Oh, yeah. A match made in heaven. Amen. Speaking of a match made in heaven, uh, today I am drinking a nice. cold brew lemonade. Which some people Ooh. will use different names for, but I just call it a cold brew lemonade. I love it's these. Delicious. It's like a coffee Arnold Palmer, oh, right? It's so good. It's oh. so good. There's a couple different ways to make it. I used like an AeroPress way to do it, and it's very delicious. Key yeah, is good lemonade sounds... and good coffee. Don't skimp on the lemonade. That sounds really good. Did you guys know that I once worked at the Annex here in Billings for no. a time as a barista? I didn't know that. I think I knew Dixie worked there. Yeah, I knew yeah, that. Yeah, I, I spent a good probably half a year there as a barista myself. And one of oh. my favorite things to make was it was an iced Americano I would make with muddled cilantro and lime. Oh, what? Uh, I hate cilantro. Absolutely hate delicious. Cilantro. It's okay. Well, Emily, it's not for you then. But Josh, next time you have access to your espresso machine, like shift drink for you, right? Mm, iced Americano. With fresh lime and muddled cilantro. Oh, it's, it's so good. Interesting. Not going to lie. I've heard of weirder drinks than that. That sounds like it could potentially be okay. Please try it. I mean, you already, you're already doing the lemonade coffee thing. That's true. That's true. That's true. So. What are you drinking, Steven? I'm throwing it. I'm full on like armchair Theo bro. And I'm drinking <laughs> a Copper John Scotch ale from Madison River Brewing Company here in Montana. Nice. Solid it's absolutely choice. the right choice. We woke up and it was like torrential rain here in Billings for a while Whoa. and then it was really foggy 
and now it's sunny and beautiful and it's i don't know just felt like a good day to drink a dark beer you know there you go cheers to my friend jeff who always who uh schooled me on dark beers aren't just for winter (laughs) (laughs) thanks jeff okay so i'm throwing it full on theo bro with the beer and the the armchair today because after a couple very invigorating conversations on sin and forgiveness I think it's time that we actually dig into atonement theories. Dun, dun, dun. Cool. And so I've, I've done some work on the podcast already, kind of trying to back up my claims for Christian universalism and also kind of put down penal substitution. So the people, I, our listeners have heard enough from me on this topic right now. So I was curious to actually start with... Like, I'm I'm sure we'll get into the various theories that we're all aware of, but I want to start the episode by asking you, my Enneagram 9 friends, who very often like to merge and not share your own opinions, I want to start nice. the episode. Nice. I want to start the episode Call with you Call out right both. at the beginning. Nice. <laughs> yes. I want to start the episode with you both saying, like, what you actually believe atonement is and why the heck Jesus had to or did die on the cross. <laughs> if we need to ease into it, maybe give me a history of like what atonement you were taught growing up or what combination of atonement theories you were raised to believe and maybe where you are now. That might be a good way to ease into it. Sure. If okay, I'll go first. I, I'm not sure. At this point. Okay. I think it's very fair to say that Jesus dying on the cross in the Gospels, something happened. And how we make sense of what happened or what did not happen are like the atonement theories that come from that. Mm -hmm. That that sounds so vague. That sounds like a Um, (laughs) non-answer. I guess I'm really attracted to Greg Boyd's idea that Jesus dying on the cross, like he gets into this in crucifixion of the warrior god this like giant two-volume book that he wrote it's basically like a systematic theology but i don't know if he would actually call it that but he basically concludes that jesus dying on the cross showing us this like cruciform form of god reveals to us the way that god has actually always been Mm -hmm. and i think he would argue and this is what i'm pretty attracted to he would argue that that is the biggest effect that the crucifixion had Mm -hmm. not that it was like fulfilling like this deep magic like like C.S. Lewis's language in Narnia or that it was actually oh, yeah. causing some sort of like metaphysical change or that it was changing God's mind in any way. He makes mm-hmm. sense of it as it's revealing God as God has always been, which I think we've also mentioned on the pod before, but mm-hmm. I really like that phrasing. And I think to me, that makes the most sense reasonably out of all of the theories that people have presented. Mm-hmm. What about you, Emily? Honestly, what's nice, I guess, is the adjective I would use in the Methodist church is we don't have like one particular theory that we are taught or brought up on. Um, Mm. In fact, John, both John and Charles Wesley really wanted to have it where we are not relying on the limit of just one particular model. In fact, in a lot of John Wesley's sermons and a lot of Charles' hymns, there's a range of biblical allusions, um, and 
it essentially stresses the idea that Christ not only dealt with penalty, like quote unquote penalty, but also this idea of just being held captive. There's a lot of that language in there. So being set free, being redeemed, and other various words along those lines. And so one of the things that I really appreciated growing up and still hear today and preach today in my own church is the mm. idea that whatever happened, whatever had to like take place, it had to do for the saving work of all people, not just the elect, not just the rich, not just a certain group of people, but truly for all people. And I just love that that idea of something being done truly for the sake of all people. And it had nothing to do with who they were, what they did, what they looked like, what life they lived. And having this idea of God truly being present with us and having a bridge between human separation from God and this incarnation now taking place to help kind of bridge that gap of life and death and resurrection. Mm. So really, we don't have like a set stance and I think that's nice because it allows us to truly explore and to form for ourselves atonement. That's something I think as Christians, yes, we can be given a theory and we can accept it. But I think with everything else in life, we have to kind of challenge some things a little bit. You know, as a kid, you would hear about gravity. And so you kind of test the boundaries of gravity. And of course, like you would learn, oh, yeah, gravity exists and this is how it works. But there are some things that are uncertain and there are some things that can't be wrapped up nicely and be the same consistently for the rest of time. And I think atonement is one of those where we can explore for ourselves what salvation looks like and how it was accomplished. So that's, yeah, that's where I'm at. I have an example off the top of my head. Go for it, I Josh. promise I will bring it back around. I don't think I told you guys about this yet, but I just watched this documentary about SpongeBob. Did I tell okay. you about this? Okay. No, not oh. at all. So I found it from a TikTok and this person like was like, you have to watch this documentary called Skin Theory. This documentary on YouTube will like explain it all. And I expected maybe like a 10 minute like op-ed length thing about SpongeBob. It was an hour and 15 minutes. It was like full length wow. doc. Oh, this guy wow. went through like the entire catalog of seasons one through four. I'm not into SpongeBob. But this whole theory was like making sense of the fact that throughout the first couple seasons, the characters will like regularly rip off their skin and sometimes like reveal human arms or something. Oh, yeah. And and he, <laughs> he it's ridiculous. And he was like trying to make sense of it. And it's it's pretty funny. I also think it's really funny if you imagine like it's a like a news pundit going through this, like it's a really serious topic because he almost has that kind of delivery. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, uh, That's so, but it reminded me about the the trouble with the word theory. Like this happens a lot between like like the sciences using the word theory, and then like mm -hmm. common like lay people, non scientists using the word theory. And I feel like there's already so many misconceptions about it. Like the skin theory hypothesis with SpongeBob is a great example of you're like looking at this mysterious thing. And you're trying to make a framework that solves it somehow, that like mm -hmm. makes some reasonable sense of it. And I feel like, 
atonement is basically the skin theory of Jesus. Like we see this like weird thing that happened with Jesus where we're like, wait, so this God man happened and was crucified and resurrected. And like all these people believed he was resurrected. What do we do with that? And I feel like personally, I wish we called them hypotheses rather than theories because scientifically that'd be a little bit more accurate. But in my mind, it's like people looking at this mystery and trying to make sense of what framework can we wrap around this that makes the most sense because it's not explicit. Mm, mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. That's the way I've been looking at it lately. Thanks, SpongeBob. Thank you, SpongeBob, for helping us make sense of the Christ. <laughs> SpongeBob, your philosophy professor. <laughs> Do you see what I mean, though? I yeah. just like have problems with the word theory, I think. Mm. Maybe that's more personal, but... I think you have every right to think that way. I think it's a valid thought, especially because theory is meant to be something that is concrete. So why do we have multiple theories to describe this one act? Mm. That's why I like hypotheses better. I think it is a great example of the fact that Christians disagree Mm -hmm. about even like the fundamentals. Yeah. Atonement seems to be one of those where I don't think we would say it's kind of a minor belief when it comes to atonement. Like some some Christians will call other Christians non-Christians for the atonement theories they subscribe to or don't subscribe to. Sure. I think atonement sets the stage for a lot of the beliefs that follow. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense that we would have these multiple ideas behind it because why else i mean essentially that's why we have all these other denominations and churches and splits in the church is because of different ideas forming and i think part of that is at the root atonement Mm -hmm. so how would how would either of you articulate if someone just asked you what atonement is like how would you articulate would you use language from some of the hypotheses you know because to be honest, I started I started this with a question like asking you what you personally thought of atonement, and then we <laughs> we ended up parsing the word theory. Um, <laughs> Very fair. <laughs> so I'm going to keep turning the screws on that one because I want to know. Like I don't know if you just want to take them one at a time. Uh, so I, I should mention one thing I heard I learned from Preston Sprinkle on his podcast forever ago, he likes to speak of atonement hypotheses as individual faces on a multifaceted diamond where, mm. you know, at some point you can, you can turn the diamond and get a, a stunning reflection off of one. And that's something about the atonement that can like resonate with you in the moment, but it's, it's all kind of in one. And what, what I like that he's doing with that is saying, this is fundamentally mysterious. And we can only do so much hypothesizing using the words of scripture. So what if we treat it with enough humility to say it might be all of them at the same time and not just one of them, you know? Mm. I really appreciate that. Um, it's it's mm. softened me toward the idea of any sort of substitutionary action happening within atonement. I still have a problem with the penal part of that, like the the sense of justice that needs satisfied or something. But I don't know if you guys were turning this atonement diamond around, which what resonates with you the most of the hypotheses you're aware of? Maybe we should just list them really quick. 
Okay. Maybe we don't have sure. to go in depth on any of them, but I have a list you know, of seven right here. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. Number one, moral influence. This is essentially Jesus as God man came to earth to give us moral teachings. And he happened okay. to die because of how radical they were. Number two, ransom theory, which is basically there is a form of transaction, but instead of like satisfying the father's wrath, like in penal substitution, the ransom is actually paid to the devil because Adam and Eve essentially sold humanity's soul to the devil at the fall. So Jesus had to come and basically like bail them out. Yeah, exactly. Um, number three, Christus Victor. This, as far as I can tell, is one of the most ancient ideas around atonement. And in fact, it wasn't um, until a good number of centuries into the history of the Christian church where it even started being referred to as one of many atonement theories. Basically, it was just kind of a widely accepted. This is how it is. Christ won victory over death, sin, and evil. Hard stop. Yeah. This theory in particular is one. uh, It's not till the 12th century because then we have our good old friend Anselm uh, come and bring up the next one. Mm-hmm. With satisfaction theory, yes. Emily, what do you know about the satisfaction theory? Uh, in this one, it's understood that Jesus' death was to satisfy the justice of God. It's mm-hmm. meant as restitution or mending what was broken. Which naturally leads to the good old Reformation and penal substitution, which I don't know how much defining we need to do there. I, that one is one I've... <laughs> spoken a lot against already i think we know um number six this one was a new one and i still don't quite understand it maybe emily you the mdiv can provide some background but it's called the governmental theory mm-hmm. have you heard of this yes oh, i don't know this one yeah i have what is it's, it um this one is it's seen very closely to penal substitution but in this theory one of the main differences is that jesus suffers the punishment of our sin and basically I'm trying to figure out the best way to basically this is where it doesn't take like the exact punishment we deserve. It's basic. it's like a close, here's a close runner up for what we yeah. deserve. Essentially. He, t- he takes a punishment for yeah. the, for the sin we've committed. It may not and- be the best one or it may not be the one best suited, but it's, it works. And in so doing, he's demonstrating, or he's helping the father demonstrate essentially God's total displeasure in sin. Mm-hmm. This one also gets into questions of election, because this this theory talks about Christ died for the church, not for all people. The governmental theory specifically has that in mind. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so yeah. how is that one different from penal substitution? Because I've always heard penal substitution and the election of the elect very closely tied together. The, the main difference is the extent to which Christ suffered on the cross. Right, and in penal substitution, Jesus is punished, which is the penal part, mm-hmm. in place of sinners, but it doesn't necessarily say all people. It just says sinners. So at that time... It could have been looked at. It was a select group of people who were seen as sinners, and that's the substitution. They're very similar. There's a lot of parsing that happens between these two, and I think that's honestly why we don't hear about the governmental theory as much. 
Yeah. And finally, number seven is what's called scapegoat theory, essentially taking a lot of taking the idea from the Old Testament where the scapegoat once a year was beaten and then chased out of the camp. Essentially, the people get to send their sins into the goat and the goat runs out into the wilderness to die. Which, even though it does seem like there's some Old Testament grounding in this, I believe this idea was not propagated until Rene Descartes. Uh, Rene Girard. Oh, Rene Girard. Oh my gosh. Yes, you're right. Descartes is, I think, therefore I am guy. That's him. Whoops. (laughs) Um, What gets me about all of these theories is not only does it just seem like semantics to me in some ways, like they Mm. all kind of say the same thing, but like slightly different. There's not just that for me, but there's also, it's so intriguing to me that pretty much all of them seem to like neatly tie a bow on the narrative. Mm. Like this is the end of the story. And to me, it's, it's like a reflection of the fact that like our brains neurologically like create narratives in our day to day, in our work, in our relationships. Like we, like we come to assumptions because our brains are trying to make a narrative to like make sense of something. And to me, that's what it seems like the atonement theories are trying to do. That's like, it's one of the first things that comes to mind for me, I guess. Honestly, hearing each of these theories, um, reminds me and this may be a really bad example and maybe it's just because i'm a hungry pregnant lady but honestly <laughs> when i think about all of these theories it reminds me of when us methodists love potlucks and so we'll have people who will bring five different types of potato salad and essentially there are differences in each of the potato salads but at the end of the day it's still potato salad like <laughs> we can have all these different theories but at the end, like at the end of the day, the theories aren't what I don't want to say they don't matter, but the theories aren't the well, thing. Well, the theories that aren't what you grace. follow. The thing you're right. following is Jesus. Exactly. Right. Um, exactly. So I feel like you should be able to scoop each of the potato salad, like have a little bit on your plate <laughs> and just know you're still being filled with potato salad and you will be satisfied and life is good. So I don't want to like just brush off atonement theory, but I do feel like it gets so condensed and so distracting to talk about it because then we start tearing it apart to the point where we're looking at these little fibers that like that's all you're left with. And at the end of the day, if all you're left with is those little fibers and you can't put them back together to have Mm. a concrete understanding for yourself, then why why did you do all that work in the first place? Yeah. Also, can we talk about why a lot of Christians act like crucifixion is the worst thing that's ever happened in human history? Uh, or like specifically the crucifixion of Jesus? Like obviously yes. crucifixion was like a brutal type of capital murder. But he wasn't the but, only one to be crucified. Yeah, he wasn't the only one to be crucified. And like, you're not going to tell me that like the Holocaust happening wasn't worse than Jesus dying. Hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of Christians approach, like, the idea of atonement and crucifixion as if, like, because this was the worst thing that ever happened in human history, therefore God loves us. Mm -hmm. Like, Jesus, like, the worst possible thing didn't happen to Jesus. Jesus could have been murdered worse. Or, like, I don't know, murdered, resurrected, murdered, resurrected, murdered, resurrected. Like, it could have been way worse. Yeah. And I just don't get the, the obsession with, like, acting like it was the worst possible thing. And therefore, that's why God went through it. Or something like that. I feel like I've heard that before. Mm-hmm. I've never thought of it in that way. 
There's this almost like this there's almost like this mm. one upping happening when we talk about that. Ooh, yeah. And I feel so uncomfortable with that. It's like that's not the point, people. That is not what this is about. We do not have to go around trying to one up people's suffering with Jesus's suffering to prove that we're saved or to to make the point that we're saved. Like Josh, I completely agree. I think there are many ways more excruciating ways that Jesus could have died. And in fact, maybe death didn't have to be the route. Like, let's bring that up. There are some people who feel Jesus yes. didn't have to die. Thank for, you. Uh, and like, what do we do with that? Are you one of those people who think Jesus didn't have to, like have to between a couple asterisks? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. What if like thought experiment time? What if Jesus existed and like everything a part of the story was the same and maybe he like got ran out of town or something but then he just like ascended like isn't the point of resurrection that he like beat death and didn't die where well, i mean he did die but like he beat yes. it and like mm-hmm. just like kept on living like what if jesus just kept on living wouldn't that accomplish the same thing oh to like prove quote unquote that he's the messiah and he's god he's this god man isn't mm-hmm. that enough is it i heard someone talk about atonement and in particular kind of holding up Christus Victor as one of the most foundational aspects of atonement and the way they described it that I I loved and I've kind of just been dwelling on ever since is that through his death Christ made what was formerly only a destination like death is like the final whatever like death is a destination for us he created a pathway out of what used to just be a destination or a place to stop. Like he, he punched through the backside of a cave and made it a tunnel. And now we can travel through death and emerge on the other side somehow. Jesus beat the Plato's cave of life. (laughs) (laughs) He is the ultimate realization of the world of the forms. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, going along with the whole idea of like, what if Jesus didn't have to die? Is there a name for Emily? This might be a question for you. Is there a name for the theology that the incarnation saves humanity and not the crucifixion? Because I find that idea really intriguing. Oh, uh, let me think. I guess it would just be like an incarnational atonement or something. Yeah. Hmm, let me hmm, let me do some digging. I actually have I have my I have some books at, right here sitting next to me. So I uh, the classic the reading digging. room of a pastor as she podcasts. Yes, yeah. Truly, <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting thought, Josh. I hadn't put it in that yeah. language. I think I've been really intrigued by that idea the last year or so. I'm not really sure what to do with it. Um, I'm not really sure what the implications are, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I think if someone's going to believe in Jesus being incarnated. I feel like you can't separate the incarnation from the story of Jesus. Like as yeah. much as the crucifixion is a part of the story of Jesus, I think the incarnation is like the necessary part of the story of Jesus. True. So really what you're looking at is CS Lewis was a big advocate for this idea actually if you didn't know this. Really? Was he? Yes. Um he had CS a CS Lewis controversy strikes again. Amen. <laughs> um, and actually, he explains it's this incarnational view of atonement. 
it's explained in one of the writings, Mere Christianity. Oh, oh, no way. Yeah. Maybe and I picked a, up on that years ago then. Okay. There's a great quote. There's a great quote. It says, we are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins and that by, def- and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has been believed. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did all this are, in my view, quite secondary. Mere plans or diagrams to be left alone if they do not help us. And even if they do help us, not to be confused with the thing itself. All the same, some of these theories are worth looking at. And basically, what he's pushing for is this idea. It's not about what Jesus did for us, but who he was for us. If that does that make sense to you? Yeah. So do you think the incarnational theology for atonement overlaps with the moral influence idea probably that would probably be the best similarity yeah to me that has more grounding anyway for like daily living yeah like even christians since the 90s have asked what would jesus do like i feel like i've Mm -hmm. heard more people talk about like being inspired to follow jesus by acting like jesus more so than like well how would jesus penally be substituted or Mm. yeah i don't know and maybe it's just because the christians who believe like very hardcore in one atonement theory over another maybe it's because they believe that like those aren't footsteps that we need to follow after because jesus like somehow did it all through his death you mean yeah so maybe that's kind of a non-issue that like any christian regardless would try to emulate jesus regardless of whether or not they think he was just moral influence atonementing Mm -hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because I mean, well, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus throughout his ministry is constantly flipping uh, or like offering this idea of that we have to die in order to live. I mean, you know, it's a part it's, of life. It's it's by losing your life that you find it. It's by giving up your life that you actually get to put it on. And maybe, maybe I've heard people kind of philosophize around that and basically say Jesus was a philosophical teacher who was saying, realize you're going to die now so that you can really experience life. Kind of like a stoic memento mori, like realize you're going to die, you know? But then in the narrative we have through four separate gospels is that this person somehow comes back in his body and that it was almost literally by his death that he found his new life. Steven, you've asked us this question multiple times now. What do you think the atonement is or was? Or what are your thoughts about it? Or how have your thoughts changed over the years? What's pushed you in this? Hmm. So I, if I was going to describe, I'm very like 80% Christus Victor. I like a little bit of scapegoat theory in there because I think that does a lot of good work around the psychology of like, I I don't believe it was God demanding a blood sacrifice. It was, I believe it was us humans demanding a blood sacrifice and the scapegoat was that in the old Testament and Jesus became like the ultimate version of us feeling like we need blood to satisfy some form of debt or some form of justice. I also don't mind moral influence in a way i think ransom gets complicated because i'm not convinced that the devil is like 
a sentient being that needed to be paid off or like he's the jailer that needs to be paid the bond to release us. And I did say earlier, I think there's a little bit of substitution, like the idea of Jesus is willing to take our place, not in the sense that like he was somehow changing a wrathful, angry father God's opinion of us, but that he was willing to take our place in a substitutionary way to say like, I also know what it feels like to experience a very real absence of the father and, (laughs) and of the divine in your life. I also know what it's like to experience that. Cause I think part of that, like that makes Jesus a lot more relatable in my opinion, but there, there's no form of justice that I believe exists above God and that God wasn't like hamstrung by some rules he set up. It was kind of like my joke tweet earlier this week. Um, when the, (laughs) did you, you guys saw the gospel coalition tweeted out, like Jesus had to play the human game as a human. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) And beat the game for us or whatever. And my tweet was like, Jesus gave us the ultimate cheat codes to life. Yeah. No, it was like, Jesus didn't play the human game with cheat codes. He played it as, like a full human, a human being. Yeah. Oh, good gravy. <laughs> and and my and my tweet was can God write a code so airtight that even he has to play the game? <laughs> and, you know what the Yeah. Oh, keep going. I bet I have something after you. Well, so I just I don't think there's there's a universe in which the God I am following through Christ somehow like sets up a system of justice and fails to realize that we might like experience a fall in Genesis three. And then he's like, Oh, well now the whole thing is set up on blood sacrifice. And now I have to somehow satisfy that with like divine blood. So now like God kills himself to save us from himself. It's it's just very logically incoherent to me. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to text you guys a picture that I also saw on Twitter that I have stared at this thing for hours, literally. Like I've I've just sat on my phone and oh, looked good at this gracious. photo. Emily, would you please describe for me <laughs> what you're seeing now? It's the it's the trolley dilemma. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <sighs> okay, so you have this trolley. I'm gonna narrate this picture for y'all because <laughs> he didn't text you this picture. So it's the trolley, right? And you have the father as the one controlling which direction the trolley will go and you have the single individual tied onto the tracks and that's the sun and then you have a bunch of people tied to the other set of tracks which is the world so the dilemma is the father deciding which way to pull the lever determining which way the trolley will go uh, will it hit the sun or will it hit the world oh my ugh, fart this is <laughs> gosh this is such a great example to me of like the limitations of human language and understanding and just analogy like you can use an analogy to like help you understand something you can invent something like skin theory to help you understand spongebob squarepants and maybe understand Mm -hmm. a hidden layer of the show right like at at some point like you're never gonna know for sure all you can do is speculate and be like this is maybe how it is that's essentially what uh, theology is. Like, that's the study of God, but we don't fully know 
or understand God. So Mm -hmm. that's just a fancy word that we have in place of how we try to understand God in the world. It's the same with any of the ologies that you find in theology. So like soteriology, oh, the doctrine of salvation. Yeah, no, we have apparently seven theories, quote unquote, to try to describe this thing that is salvation. And we still can't fully even understand that. So uh, yeah, I think language is something and comprehension is something that can inhibit our understanding. And I don't think that's a bad thing either. Like we we might as well just play in the sandbox that we have yeah. with the tools yeah. we have with the language and just try but to But I think that more people need to be open to the idea that it's imperfect. Mm-hmm. That like literally, like if you're going to believe in God, your theology about God literally has to be imperfect. Otherwise, that your theology would be God if your mm-hmm. theology was completely mm-hmm. perfect. Like, yeah. you, oh, like I, I completely 100% believe that if God exists, that our understanding of God is always going to fall short and be incomplete and in a lot of cases incoherent. Josh, what do you mean? Even if, if? we like, just kidding, just kidding. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's reasonable to believe in God. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> um Stephen, you reminded me of uh the story of Jephthah in the Old Testament. Do you guys remember Jephthah? Ooh, tell the story anyways. I yes. love this okay, story. Okay, okay. So I think we brought this up on our Christmas episode. If you just read the story at face value, it's really weird. This warrior, I actually don't know where the story is found. It's somewhere in the Bible. Find it. On your own time, uh, so this we'll have it warrior for notes. Israel named Jephthah, <laughs> he like comes home. No, first he's in battle and he like makes the promise, the famous promise where you're like, God, I'll do anything for this thing that's happening right in front of me. <laughs> but he makes this dumb, what's seen as this dumb promise where he's like, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that comes out of my house. And so he like wins the battle, and then on the way home he's like celebrating and hoorahing and then he gets to his house and his daughter comes out to meet him and so then he's like well shoot i'm gonna kill my daughter (laughs) hey daughter i made this dumb promise to god and she's like well at least let me have a sleepover with my friends in the mountains before it is done and then it and then he kills his daughter later and it's this really bizarre story and i feel like a lot of people set up atonement also there's an explanation for this it has to do with like the the layout of the houses at the time that makes a lot more sense of the story go listen to our christmas episode if you're curious uh but i feel like this story is a great example of these logic traps that people like to put god in sometimes and like steven you brought up earlier like sometimes there's these logical inconsistencies with atonement theories like can god create a a game so crazy like he can't write a cheat code for it like i feel like people stuff god in these logic boxes when it comes to atonement and they almost treat god like jephthah like oh well god promised Mm. that he would sacrifice someone so i guess he has to sacrifice someone Mm -hmm. interesting i don't know yeah i just like made that connection earlier with the whole like like logic game i guess that's what like still gets me about people making up these like theories and theologies is that like the reason that people are doing it is because it's not explicit. It's not clear. And so therefore, people like make these frameworks to make them more clear, but they're just hypotheses that you 
can't prove or disprove. We're going to take a quick break to say a few thank yous, then we'll be back to our conversation. Thank you to our generous patrons for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Y'all are such a huge encouragement to us. If you'd like to support future episodes of Ravel, visit patreon.com slash ravelpod or by tapping the link in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who is giving five-star ratings and thoughtful reviews on Apple Podcasts and to everyone who contributes to our weekly discussions at RavelPod on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, much love to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music in full color. And thank you to the Highline Media Network for having us as one of their founding podcasts. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, No Normal People. And so his belly starts to descend and then I can extend rather and I can hear his ribs cracking and the skin splits and out comes, sorry, this is very visceral, isn't it? For yeah, wow. some of your yeah. listeners. And, and this woman crawls out mm. and crawls over him and into the water hole and washes herself. And then I'm kind of, my eyes are kind of zooming in on her. And then she turns and she looks at me directly, which is very unnerving in a dream. Yeah. Definitely, um, yes. And she starts to float towards me. And now back to the conversation. It's also one of those things where it's like uh, atonement to me. It feels like one of those paintings that you kind of have to deliberately like lose focus and just let your whole field of vision take it in. Because if you focus on just one aspect, you lose the rest of the picture. That's what it feels like to me when I study these, you know, these seven historical atonement theories is like if you myopically study penal substitution and it inevitably falls apart, then you're like, okay, what's the next one? And you move on to like studying satisfaction or Christus Victor. And even then you're like, this doesn't feel like it's painting the whole picture for me, you know, and it almost requires just kind of a step back and it's it's in my opinion it's one of those things that we literally just have to take as part of the mystery of the faith we subscribe to and just say like i believe something happened and i'm willing to trust in faith that will allow us to create a world more full of flourishing and goodness and blessing and grace and just like let the rest be what it is because I, mm-hmm. I love what you're pointing out, Josh, especially with this trolley problem picture I texted you is like what I hate the most about this. There are many things I hate about about this image, but what I hate the most is that it implies that the father somehow like somehow the trolley is more powerful than the father and the son and the Holy Spirit combined. Somehow like oh. we've wait, say that again. Somehow we've lost an almighty God and now there is a system of justice or an uncontrollable trolley that mm. is moving with its own agency or moving with a power that's not of God, like from God's self. And I have so many problems with that, especially like the, the way we've spoken about panentheism, like the universe exists and God is in everything in the universe, but God is not simply the universe itself. Mm-hmm. Like it, even that is another example of like words are just starting to break down and we're just trying to, put our finger on a mystery that is in a like a completely different dimension but what what this trolley problem represents to me and honestly what i view things like satisfaction and ransom and penal substitution is that there is something more mighty more potent 
and more knowledgeable or more rigid somehow than God is. Hmm. I have a question. Um, yeah. And it's one I'm sure you've been asked before, both of you. Um, but it's one that after this conversation, it it just came into my mind. I'm. Have you ever been asked the question, when did you know you were saved? Ooh. Have you ever been asked that uh. question? Hmm. I've been asked the question. My my response to the question just now, Emily, was like a lot of sadness in my stomach. Right. Like. Me too. Because I I can't put like a calendar date on it. I can't put a time on it. I couldn't even tell you when I was baptized, but I don't think my baptism was the moment I was actually saved. Or even if I need like this is another example of like, what are we saved from? If we're being saved from anything. And this is why Chris's Victor for me is like probably represents 80% of my atonement pie because I feel like I am being redeemed into an everlasting life that is plugged in to the flow of the Trinity and that death now is simply the interstate highway system between something now and possibly something later, or like at least some form of redemption and unification with the spirit of God in the whole universe Mm -hmm. in some meaningful way. Um, so if I'm saved from anything, it's from death and sin itself. It's, it's something that teaches me that sin doesn't have to control me and like my own selfish desire doesn't have to overrule a, a, a very real desire in me to like serve my wife and love my future children and love my friends. Even you two, there's still an instinct that wants to see you two flourish beyond making sure like I have enough food to eat or whatever. Like But I feel sad by the question. Just because you don't remember a specific instance? Well, I feel sad by the question because I remember being very worried about knowing mm-hmm. when it happened. I there was a period in my life when I was going to Awana once a week and I was going to Sunday school on Sundays and then we would have like a middle school youth group on Wednesdays and there was a time in my life where like I was obsessively praying something like the sinner's prayer or the salvation prayer because I was so worried that by with like literally every action that I could identify as sin. Mm Mm-hmm. I was worried that I wasn't there yet. And then I'm like, God, just like, let me convince you that I belong in heaven with you. Um, You know, even though, even though as a seventh grader, I just had like another wild hormonal sexual urge, like just being so convinced that literally nothing I could do would be good enough unless I prayed that prayer. And it never sunk into me that like, because even the people telling me to pray that prayer, they they would always say, like, there's something along the lines of once saved, always saved. Or, like, you recognize that you have a problem, you prayed to Jesus to forgive you, and now you're forgiven forever. But that never sunk in. It was, it was, very, it was a very transactional thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that was being informed by the subversive, some, like, that penal substitution atonement that was being taught to me from a very young age. Um so I don't know. I don't know when I was saved or when I knew I was saved because honestly, even today, I don't know. Right. 
I think that question just brings a lot of anxiety for you for I think just for a lot of people in general. And it, yeah, as totally. a pa- as a pastor, it makes me sad because, you know, like even today before church started, I had a, a, a woman who um, she's around my age. She um, works at a fast food restaurant here in town, and she was sad that she had to go to work and she was going to miss church, but she at least wanted to come to sit and listen to our band rehearse before she had to go to work. And I remember before she left, she came up to me and said, Pastor, I need to find a time to talk to you. So I told her my office hours and said, I'm also available by appointment. Here's my phone number. You know, feel free to reach out. And before she left, she was saying, I just have so much sin and I have so much that I worry about that I don't know if I'm saved. And she just broke down into tears. Mm. And like as a pastor, I, I never want that on anyone we all go through our spiritual emergencies and we all experience life in various ways that we want to have an understanding as to why things happen the way they do why things are the way they are and how we are involved in that and for someone to come up to me with tears in their eyes and you can just see the pain in her face where she says, I have so much to make amends for. I don't know if I'm saved. There's so much anxiety behind that. And that's a lot of hurt that for me is so hard to to look at them. And I'm never going to tell them, well, you're absolutely right, because they're not like the, <laughs> that just to me seems so crazy as a pastor. To take someone in and to say, well, yeah, let's mm. get to let's get to the bottom of this so we know you're saved. No, mm. like you're saved, you're loved. And there's nothing that can change that in my eyes. We can work through this grief together. We can work through this together to make sense. But you are saved. You are loved. And I can't and I'm not the one dictating that. And you're not the one dictating that. It's God that dictates that. And I think for a God that's present with us, it would not make sense to say, well, you haven't been saved yet. I just don't see that as being a possibility. Mm. Mm. It's another good example of how the English language, it's good for, it's not a very substantive language. We have to speak in so many metaphors, like from the beginning. Because I wonder if there's a way to think about it as like, if we are saved, I think what, of a, what a lot of atonement theories hammer home is that we are being saved in the sense of like, we are rescued from something, right? Mm-hmm. But I wonder there's if we can There's a trolley of- coming down the track. <laughs> are, you, are you out of the way? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's, but it's I, a very active sounding yeah. phrasing. Uh, Versus atonement but- doesn't really feel like that. Atonement- Maybe it's just because I've only ever heard it in the Christian context, but it sounds a lot more official or mm-hmm. uh, ritualistic or right. legalistic. Mm-hmm. Legalistic, yeah, something like that versus like an active rescue. Yeah, but I wonder if we can rebrand salvation and rebrand the word saved almost in the sense of like a kid saves quarters in his piggy bank. Oh, mm. You know, okay, like, I don't hate like, that. Like God has God has put us away for safekeeping 
and for some glorious end in the future or some some glorious purpose or something like that. Like God God has saved us not in the sense of like snatched us from the spider's web dangling over the pits of the fiery hell. Thank you, Jonathan Edwards, for that terrifying <laughs> image. <laughs> um sorry. I like we're not saved from as rescued, but maybe maybe God is here saying like I've kept you safe. We are accounted for, like the lost sheep and the lost coins. Yeah. You reminded me of this interview with Rich Mullins. Do you know that name? I do, yes. He's a musician, correct? Yes. He is a, I believe he has now passed away, and I don't know how to find this interview. Maybe on YouTube somewhere. He wrote a lot of famous Christian courses that came out during, like, the Jesus movement in the 80s and 90s, Uh, like, Mm -hmm. a step by step you'll lead me and i will follow you all of my days that's rich mullins yeah 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 he wrote tons of them but that's one of his more well-known ones but he was also like a huge jesus hippie like he was a little controversial for his time i think like maybe think like shane claiborne if you will like some people Mm -hmm. don't like him some people are all about him right so he had this interview and somebody was asking him about his testimony like when did you come to jesus and his answer was like well um, I was raised in the church, and I just don't remember a time that I wasn't a Christian. I was just, I've, I've always been a Christian. And the person was like, well, no, like, like when did you accept Jesus? Like, when did you make a decision? And he, and he was like, well, I guess if I had to pick a time, it'd be like when I was like in preschool, and I like prayed the prayer for the first time. And then the person like just kept egging him on and being like, well, no, like that doesn't really count i mean like when did you like know what you were doing Ugh. making a decision and he was like well i mean i guess maybe when i was a little bit older like in middle school and they like taught us more about jesus and i i knew in my heart that jesus was for me and i made a decision to follow jesus and the person just like kept pressing in and being like well no i mean like when did you like make a fully conscious decision um and accepted <laughs> jesus for yourself, not like someone else telling you to. And he's like, well, uh, maybe when I went to college. And he just like kept like like uh. progressing in age. And like, I, I, I wish I could remember off the top of my head how many times he did that. But uh, for me, that highlights a couple things. And I relate to it a lot because in some ways, I feel like I've always been a Christian. And in some ways, I'm not convinced I cannot be a Christian. Yeah. Because I was raised Christian. Yeah. No matter how much my beliefs change, I'm not convinced I can exist outside of that system. So there's like this sense of like always have been, always will be almost. Right. And it also highlights for me like the continuation, which Stephen, I think you were trying to get at in the like rebranding the saving. Like it's not necessarily like I think a lot of people approach the whole salvation atonement thing is like a one and done, whether it's like our personal mm. decision moment or the Jesus crucifixion moment. I think a lot of people look, try to like look at it as like a, a point in time and then like an arrow shooting forward from that point in time versus like a, mm. like a continuing cycle or like a ripple or, mm-hmm. or a ripple effect. Yeah. Like your growth as a person and as someone who's trying to, do good in the world and leave behind the harm that oh, we've committed. Whoa. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I really like the idea of it being like a continuation, like a continual 
Whoa. saving a continual crying out or yeah, but whatever analogy you want to put to it. I really like the idea of it being constant. I also like what it points out, and it's kind of sad that it points this out, but I'm glad that it did, is this idea of we as individuals need to justify to other individuals that part of our faith journey. Oh, yeah, true. That happens. And I feel like that doesn't have to happen. I think like his first answer would have been totally fine for me. You know, I don't need to question every aspect of your faith journey. And that is an element especially that I don't need to question because that's not that doesn't affect me in any way. It doesn't affect my understanding for myself of how I was saved or when I was saved or if I'm saved. I don't need to try to push you up against a corner and have you prove when you were saved, if you're saved, when you were saved. I think it's sad that we do that to other Christians and to people in general, that we have to put them in situations where they need to, A, justify themselves, but also justify themselves in a way that is good for you, that the answer is good enough for you. Why can't it well, just be good enough yeah. for them, hmm. for the individual? Mm-hmm. Well, because, I mean, like, this this is why I actually like the language in scapegoat theory of atonement is like there's something to our psychology that is always going to look for defining our in-group and out-group and i i think at the root of it that's what that question is inspired by like do we agree what saved means and if you have a concrete time i don't know if if people think it'll tell them something about the person they're speaking to in that moment like oh he's been a christian for five years i can reasonably expect him to be like this percent humble or something like that. That might be a really cynical take, but I think it's just looking for other people like you is what that question is born out of. And I think, yeah, I think so. That and I think that's okay, but it, there's something that changes though, where that doesn't become the end product because then it turns into like the interview that Josh explained, the guy was trying to give his answer, but it wasn't good enough. So even if he was considered in the in-group, it still wasn't up to snuff to a certain degree to the interviewer. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that happens in the world around us. You know, Alex the other day was at the gym and this guy was asking him about what he believes and Alex was answering his question, but he also just wanted to get back to working out. And the guy hmm. just kept pushing him to the point where it was like Alex came home, didn't finish his workout. and was sitting on the couch red in the face because he was like, why, why does it affect this guy so much if I don't believe 100% the same thing that he does? Mm. I, could, I could look at an orange and I could look at an apple and they're both fruit, but they're different fruit. But heaven forbid this orange is not the same as this apple. Hmm. I still think that the, that, that guy's desire was like, Let's see how many times we can play go fish just to see like how similar we are or like, are you, are you also enough like me? Like we go to the same gym, like what else is in common? And I, I think it's just a, but that's the thing is like, like, why does that have to happen? Why can't it? Just I don't think be... it does. It's just, it's the ego's play to see if either you can be better than the person or combat a, a very deep sense of loneliness. And that's what I think is sad that we're even doing that. 
You yeah. know what I mean? That's what's think, sad is that that shouldn't have to happen. <laughs> no, like, I agree. We are, we are Christians. We are exploring this idea of faith in our own unique way. So mm-hmm. what if my journey or my understanding of salvation does not look like yours? In fact, if it did, if we all agreed 100% on everything, I think life would be very boring. If everything tastes the same and looks the same and smells the same, that gets old really quick, I think. And I think that's what I love about when people come and share their faith journey with me is because it's so unique and it is so different from mine. And while there may be comfort in finding similarities, I'm not going to waste my time saying, well, mine happened like this. Did yours happen like this? And if it didn't, then for me to say, well, we're just not uh, up to par with each other. I don't care. I don't have to be up to par with anyone. You don't have to be up to par with me. That's not what it's about. We lose sight of that. And we're doing the exact opposite of what we're called to do. (laughs) Well, and what atonement at the root is, is like it's this redeeming action where we believe that Christ is putting the world back together in some meaningful way, even from even putting the world back together from a felt sense of separation and maybe not even a real separation. You know, like Richard Rohr always breaks down in his books, like atonement can be is spelled and like broken up as at one moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the more we try and fracture and differentiate based on seven different theories of atonement, but then we also map on like, what do you think of the existence of hell? And then we talk about like, there's so many varieties in the way we can piece together certain theologies that we're doing the exact opposite of what atonement is here to actually teach us is that mm. we're we're all here to be redeemed and to enter that flow. Josh, something you reminded me of that I've never really spent a lot of time thinking about is like why theologies and like specific actions around baptism matter so much to different people and to different denominations. And so like there, there are many debates on whether infant baptism is legitimate or if it needs to be an adult baptism based on a personal decision and the, the other one that I just realized is, you know, there's there's a debate, there's a conversation around whether the water in the baptismal ought to be flowing or if it could be like a still pool, almost like static. Is there a debate? I've never heard that one before. There is a debate. Yes. What? Emily, would yes. you give some background to this that you are aware of? Oh, gosh. Um. I don't even know where I don't even know where it started, honestly. Is it just like an aesthetic thing? I think I I used to think that, but after something you said, Josh, I'm actually thinking that there's some real theology that goes into like if the water is constantly in movement, if there's a constant flow, that it helps in a concrete way, as concrete as water can be. It helps illustrate the fact that God in our universe is an ever-flowing stream, also as Richard Rohr likes to talk about, especially in the Divine Dance. Like, and, and I think this this is not just a Richard Rohr thing. It's also a very um, like charismatic thing to speak of the Holy Spirit as a river that you can swim in, you know, and join the flow of. Mm-hmm. And I think I think in a in a meaningful way, you know, a a flowing baptismal font 
represents that this has always been going on and that you are not in a vacuum. You're not just an individual choosing God, but you are responding to God choosing you is how I want to say it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if the better question isn't, you know, instead of asking, when did you know you were saved? The real question is, when did you learn that you were saved? Because you've been saved all along. Said the Christian Universalist. Hello. <laughs> thank you. But that's what the baptism is. I've been is waiting that, to bring that up this whole time. <laughs> but that's what the baptism is, is choosing that outward sign of like, yes, I will voluntarily follow Jesus's death under the surface, under the earth, under the water, and rise in some new meaningful way as a little Christ, as a Christian, you know? But it's entering that flow. You're not just like doing it one and done. And and I, I know this was a debate even in the early church is whether you could baptize people in uh, ponds or if it should only be in rivers, you know, taking cues from John the Baptist. Like he was always in a river. He was always letting the flow of the river envelop the person he was he was helping to baptize. There's something there. Which is a callback to the, the Jordan River in totally. the Israelite story. Totally. Well, and I want to point out, and I, I can't think off the top of my head what the Greek word is and in which scripture, but there is a, I want to say maybe discrepancy, if the word is flowing water or living water. Mm-hmm. And that I think some that's where some people on the other side of the debate would say, well, it doesn't matter if it's flowing or if it's more stationary because of this idea of the water becoming living through the act of baptism for like what the purpose of the water is for. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like in the Methodist church, we can have it where we're pouring water. I like for babies. I'll take my fingers and I kind of do like a little splashy kind of flicking motion. So it's not flowing in that sense. Um, And some Mm -hmm. people prefer immersion and they do it in a bathtub or they go out to a pond or a river. And so whether or not the water is flowing, the water is living in the sense of what you are using it for. And that's what I like um, on that on that debate. Yeah, I think I don't put any meaningful stock in the baptism yeah. font always has to be flowing, but what it represents is what you're yeah. speaking to. And I think that it helps, it helps me elevate that very sad and poor question in my mind of like, when mm-hmm. did you, when did you get saved? And it elevates the question into when did you learn yeah. that you were saved? You know, do you think that the authors of the atonement theories I think we can all admit they were written by humans. Like, even if someone <laughs> believes in inerrancy mm, of the Bible, sure. Yeah. Like, why w- these words? Like, don't obviously, show those. Up. <laughs> yeah, these words, these theories of atonement are not in the Bible. So, I think we can all admit that they're faulty. But I think we can. What What do you think about the authors of the atonement theories using poetic license to describe the mystery in front of them, just like Jesus used parables to describe the kingdom of God? Like, what if none of them actually believed that this these were, like, accurate, tangible, functional things? Like, what if they thought of it more as, like, the crucifixion of Jesus is like a scapegoat. Mm, Goes out into right. the wilderness to, like, take the sins of the people away. Mm-hmm. Or the crucifixion of Jesus is like a a judge who shifts the blame or something. Like, what if they're just using poetic license this whole time? And that's why it seems so semantic-y. 
sure. I think that's a very real possibility. I can get on board with that. Yeah. Does that answer your question, Josh? (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I guess. Yep. I guess it's just that easy. (laughs) I don't know if I have any more thoughts about this. Do you guys? I'm sure I do. And I'm sure I will in the future. But I think this is a. There's a lot to think on, you know, like there's a there's a point where you want to say, okay, I've digested and taken in enough. Now I'm going to let it marinate and simmer and then see what comes from it. Mm, Yeah. Especially, I I appreciated this conversation, especially following our conversations on sin and forgiveness in that order. Like, I've always heard atonement posited as the thing that functionally delivers forgiveness for our sin or from our Mm. sin. That's a great point. And of course, I'm opening a can of worms at the very end of the episode. Let's go. Earlier, you reminded me of the three main theories of sociology. Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah, you remember these? Mm-hmm. Do you remember them off the top of your head, Emily? I did have to look them up, I will admit. Uh, <laughs> not off the top of my head, no, but I'm sure okay. once you start saying it, I'll be like, oh, yep. The top three theories of sociology are functionalism, conflict theory, and symbolic interactionism. Ah, see? Yes, and I was even mouthing it, too, as you You were so were. close. I heard you muttering. <laughs> nice. Um. That now, of course, take in mind that these are like trying to describe like society and like trying to make a framework for how society mostly functions. So, like with the idea of functionalism, for example, it's the the framework that society is basically like one large human body, and each part of society functions in different ways, but each part of society has a function. Mm-hmm. It like serves some sort of purpose, or like has some sort of outcome for the rest of society. Or like conflict theory like is used a lot in uh, communist thought. It's like historically used for like class cl- conflict, like to make mm-hmm. sense of like different conflicts that happen in society. So it posits that society and the human species is inherently in conflict with itself. And then mm-hmm. symbolic interactionism is basically like the framework of things that we create in society become symbols that have other meanings for us. And then we like have to interact with those symbols. So they're like very different lenses to look at society with. And I feel like in some ways that's representative of like how there's different atonement theories. But also you reminded me of it earlier, Stephen, because I think a lot of people think about the atonement as like what is the function of the atonement? Yeah. Right. Like what is what is the atonement like accomplishing? And a lot of the theories try to make sense of that. Like somehow God is saving us or God is rescuing us or God is punishing Jesus instead of us. And so like there's some sort of function, but I personally don't see, or you, I think there's also a little bit of like conflict in there. Like God is inherently at conflict with humanity or Mm. humanity is inherently in conflict with itself. Like Mm. whether God is saving humanity from God or from humanity. But I don't hear a lot of people talking about atonement and the crucifixion as like a symbolic interactionism. Like, whether or not the crucifixion and or the atonement does actually accomplish something tangible in humanity or history, like what is the the symbol of it supposed to be? Like the God-man being mm. crucified. And I feel like that's what Greg Boyd is getting at yeah. when he's like, the God-man being crucified shows us what God is really like. Like that symbolism is the most important thing. And how we interact with that symbol. Yeah. Oh, so anyway, I just wanted to drop nice. that at the end there. 
A plus, Josh. A plus. That's a good, Thank you. That's a good drop. Um, let's see. Any announcements before we leave? We're still working on getting a Bible study started with our group. We've been having some good chats with our current patrons on what we might do. Sounds like we're going to study some non-canonical texts, which is very interesting to me because I've actually yeah. never gone that direction. Sounds fun. very fun. Well, thank you so much, friends, for yeah, this conversation. I like this wrapping up a trilogy on sin, forgiveness, and atonement. Hey, there you go. Rather, Was that our first mini-series unintentionally? Kind of. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Well, Emily. Right on. Tune in next week for something completely unrelated. Indeed. But sort of related. <laughs> indeed. Emily, do you have a word for us on our way out? I think I might. However you view salvation, whether it's punitive, rescuing, captive, whatever the case may be, these are all words and languages and images that we are trying to use to understand something so divine and so complex. We may never have an answer, but at least we can come together and discuss and share and grow in whatever knowledge we gain from these conversations. Welcome to No Normal People. I'm Steven. And I'm Dixie Lee. The internet didn't need another podcast interviewing the same famous authors, artists, and thought leaders. Dixie, my friend Bailey educated me about a word called sonder, and this is the realization that any stranger or passerby you see has a life equally complex, deep, and vibrant as your own. So join us every Tuesday as we talk to the normal people in our lives and hopefully inspire sonder in yours. No Normal People. It's like Humans of New York, but a podcast, and in Montana. Highline Media Network. Normal people in normal places.